Welcome to the podcast of Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more information about our church and for more messages, visit sovgracechurch.ca. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Hebrews chapter 1. Today, we're beginning a new series in the book of Hebrews called The Supremacy of Christ for the Endurance of the Saints. The Supremacy of Christ for the Endurance of the Saints. Many, if not all of us, know people who began the Christian life but did not end it. They failed to endure. To the end. Some of them abandoned the Christian faith by their beliefs, and some of them abandoned the Christian faith by their lifestyles. As Reformed Christians, we don't always know what to do with this because, of course, we believe in the precious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We believe that God completes what he starts. We believe that those who are born again will never die again. And we believe that Christ is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And as he promised in the gospel of John, that no one will snatch his sheep out of his hands. All of that is gloriously true. But none of that changes the fact that we have to fight for faith. By the grace of God, we need to fight sin. We need to fight doubt, and we need to fight to endure. And that is what the book of Hebrews is all about. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know that he wrote with a pastoral heart. Throughout this series, we're simply going to call him the apostle. The book of Hebrews is what you could call a written sermon. It's not uh, an epistle like one of Paul's letters, uh, nor is it just a recorded oral sermon. It is a written sermon. This apostle preaches on paper, first to the first century believers, and now across the centuries to us. Now, what's interesting is how this written sermon resembles sermons that we might hear preached today. The apostle alternates between explanation and exhortation. He he exposits scripture. He explains it. He helps us understand the meaning of scripture. And then he applies it to our lives and shows shows us how it is relevant to how we live day by day as believers. And the main point of his sermon, the thesis statement of his sermon, you could say, is simply do not give up, fight for faith, endure to the end. He wrote at a time when Christians were facing many different kinds of challenges to their faith. He talks about Christians having their property being plundered. There was persecution going on in society. He says that they had not suffered to the point of shedding their blood yet, but they were losing their property. They were being exiled from the cities that they were from. 
They were also facing the temptations to return to a sinful lifestyle, to return to the lifestyle that they left behind when they first professed faith in Christ. They were also facing the dangers of what you could simply call, call spiritual lethargy, where they were getting bored of Christ, of the gospel, of the doctrines of the Christian faith, and they were starting to yearn for novelty, for something that was new and revolutionary. And we obviously face similar obstacles today. In the midst of all these challenges, the apostle exhorts his original readers and us to fight to endure. Because if we do not fight to endure, our hearts will harden, we will fall away from the living God, and we will face God's judgment. Let me give you a few examples of this theme that runs through the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2 verse 1 says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Hebrews 3 verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Hebrews 4 verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Hebrews 10, verse 36. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, the question for us today and the question for the first century believers that the apostle was originally writing to is, where does this endurance come from? Where do we get the strength to keep fighting, to keep going and to not give up. When times are hard or when we're in a state of spiritual depression or doubt, where do we get fresh fuel for the fires of our faith? Now, the answer might surprise you. I mean, we might think that it comes from the strength of our willpower or from our fear of eternal punishment or from a conviction that the, the Christian life is really the best way to live. And those factors are certainly relevant to one degree or another. But the primary answer that Hebrews gives us is that endurance comes from a high view of Christ. This is the key to endurance in the Christian life. It is seeing Christ as he truly is, supremely glorious, good, and worthy of of worship. What we believe about Christ changes everything. It changes what we believe, it changes how we live, and it changes our capacity to endure. Without a high view of Christ, endurance becomes impossible. Nothing else is sufficient to keep us Christians, to, to help us to endure to the end, not Christian morality, not even Christian community. Only a high view of Christ, glorious, supreme, worthy of worship, is sufficient to help us to endure to the end. If we have that view of Christ, we can actually endure, not only to the end, but endure with joy. We can endure with joy, no matter what toils or snares we face every day, no matter the efforts 
of the three great enemies of our faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil. No matter what seasons of life change around us, we will have strength to endure with joy when we see Christ as supremely glorious. That is why this series is called The Supremacy of Christ for the Endurance of the Saints. If we are to endure, we need a higher view of Christ in his glory, majesty, and worth. And if we devote ourselves to studying this book, that is exactly what we are going to get. And that begins with the first four verses of chapter one. The apostle, rather than beginning uh, like a typical letter with greetings and introductions, he launches immediately into a magnificent vision of Jesus Christ. These opening four verses of Hebrews are four of the most Christ-exalting, glorious descriptions of the person and work of Jesus Christ that you will find anywhere in the Bible. And they set the tone, not only for the rest of the book, but for our endurance as believers. So with all that said, let us read our text today, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. This is the word of the Lord. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The title of this sermon is The Son Who Sustains. The Son Who Sustains. We're going to have three points today. First, listen to the Son. Second, worship the Son. And third, trust the Son. Let's look at our first point. Listen to the sun. One of the fundamental truths about the nature of the Christian God is that he is a God who discloses himself to us. The Christian God doesn't just leave it to us to draw our own conclusions about who he is and what he is like through our study of nature or through our religious speculation. He is a God who communicates the truth of his being and his will to us with words, with speech that we can understand. I love how the statement of faith of the Sovereign Grace Churches, our denomination, begins. It begins with this. Our eternal, transcendent, all-glorious God, who forever exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is by his very nature a communicative being. This is a statement that captures Part of who God is in his nature. He is by his very nature a communicative being. He speaks. And he speaks because he is relational. And he is relational because he is love. God is love. Fundamentally in relation to the persons of the Trinity. And secondarily in relation to humanity. And therefore... 
he has communicated himself to us. Now, verse 1 and verse 2 give us two ways in which God has spoken. The first way is through the prophets. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. It was God speaking through the prophets. Now, this should immediately put to rest any notion that the Old Testament is inferior to the New Testament. There are a lot of people who say that they like the, the God of the New Testament with his love and with his offers of peace, but they really dislike and perhaps even uh, hate the God of the Old Testament with his wrath and anger and all this talk about sin. But Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 tells us that it was God speaking through the prophets to our fathers. It was God speaking through Moses when he commanded Israel to destroy the Canaanite nations. It was God speaking through the psalmists when they pray that, that God would give vengeance to their enemies. It was God speaking through the prophet Isaiah when he denounced Israel's religious festivals and feasts because they refused to turn away from evil and do good. God was the one who was speaking by the prophets in many ways and at many times. He spoke mercy, yes, but he also spoke judgment. He spoke love, yes, but he also spoke his hatred of evil. There are parts in the Old Testament that, of course, are going to be hard for us to understand and to accept. But if we respond to those parts by refusing to listen to them or believe them, then we're not just rejecting ideas. We're not just rejecting parts of the Bible. We are rejecting who God has revealed himself to be. Now, the second way that God has spoken to us is in verse two. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, we need to note the contrast between verse 1 and verse 2 to highlight the significance of this statement. In verse 1, it says that God spoke by the prophets at many times and in many ways. But now in these last days, God speaks in one way, just one way. He speaks by his son. Divine revelation used to come through a diversity of different voices. But now it comes through a singular focus on Jesus Christ. It is remarkable that God speaks to us in the first place, but it is utterly beyond comprehension that God would speak to us by his son. His, his communication couldn't be more personal. He didn't send just a, a servant or uh, an envoy who just works for him. He sent his eternally begotten son. Nor could his self-disclosure be more authoritative. We can have absolute confidence in the truthfulness of God's revelation of himself, his communication of himself, because he does so through his son. You know, the church father, Athanasius, wrote a biography of a man named Antony who is largely seen as the father of the monastic movement. 
And Antony was seen as so wise and so holy that emperors would write to him and seek his advice. And it, yet this is what Antony said to his followers. Do not be astonished if an emperor writes to us, for he is a man, but rather wonder that God wrote the law for men and has spoken to us through his own son. My friends, there is nothing greater than the truth that God has spoken to us through his own son. No, no letter or phone call or text message or direct message from the greatest celebrity or the most powerful politician could compare to the unparalleled privilege of having God speak to us through his word by his son. This is such a definitive moment in history that it marks the beginning of a new era in God's history of redemption. The apostle calls it in verse two, these last days. The prophets, they all spoke long ago, that long ago capturing a time frame that spans thousands and thousands of years from the very dawn of creation. But all of that only served as an introduction, a footnote, if you will, to these last days that Christ has brought us into. The last days, they began with the coming of Christ, and they will end with the return of Christ. And that means that we, right now, live in the last days. It is no different from the, the designation that the apostle gives to the Hebrews. They lived in the last days, and we live in the last days. And that means that the word of Christ, the self-disclosure of God coming through his son, continues to be definitive and conclusive for us. We don't need any more revelation. We have the prophets who prepared us for the coming of Christ. We have the words of Christ himself. And we have the apostles whom Christ commissioned to speak and to write on his behalf. And all of that is contained in the Bible. That is all we need. Of course, we believe that the Holy Spirit continues to lead believers and give us words and impressions and all that. But all of that is subject to the ultimate authority of God's word. Because the Son has spoken in these last days. And the Son's words are all we need. If we only grasp the wonder of this reality that God has spoken to us by his Son, then endurance in the Christian faith would not be so difficult. It's only a matter of time before wonder at God's word leads to the reading of God's word. And the reading of God's word alone will provide you with the nourishment to your soul that you need to stay vibrant in your walk with God. So many people fail to endure because they stop reading the Bible. It sits on their shelves, gathering dust through weeks and then months and then years until not only God's word becomes irrelevant, but the whole Christian faith becomes irrelevant. When they do pick up the Bible, they read it with a critical spirit. They, they position themselves as the judge of God's word rather than the humble recipients of God's word. 
And as they judge God's word, they they take what they like about the Bible and they perhaps blow it up on a poster or, you know, memorize that particular verse. But the parts that they don't like, uh, they ignore. Over time, what inevitably happens is that they discover that the parts of the Bible they like can be found elsewhere. And the Christian faith becomes completely irrelevant. Endurance begins with believing that God has indeed spoken through the prophets and now through his son. And if we are to live, we must listen to his son. But who who exactly is this son that we are to listen to? What, What qualities does he possess that would lead us to believe that he truly does speak on God's behalf and that he is truly worthy of us listening to and believing. This is where the apostle gives us several reasons why we should not only listen to the son, but worship him, which leads to our second point, worship the son. The apostle begins in verse two by telling us two things about the son. He says that God appointed him the heir of all things. And he tells us that through him, God created the world. Everything belongs to the Son, and everything was created through the Son. He is the agent of the Father, and he is the heir of the Father. Now, we need to be clear here, because Jesus wasn't appointed the heir of all things by virtue of his divine nature. Because as the the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the one who is fully God, all things already belong to him by nature, by, by virtue of his divine nature. We'll see more of this in verse three. Verse two is talking about the title that the father has given him by virtue of his human nature. Through his accomplishments as a man, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his triumphant resurrection, Jesus, the man, earned the right to be called the heir of all things. And that is a title that we were supposed to have. We as human beings made in the image of God were given dominion over all creation, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every creeping thing that covers the earth. And that is why Psalm 8 says this. Psalm 8 is a very important Psalm in the book of Hebrews. This is what Psalm 8 verses six to eight says. You have given him, that is mankind, dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. God created everything for us to rule over in his name and under his authority. But we failed in our role as God's stewards of creation. I mean, Adam and Eve rebelled against God's law and tried to seize exclusive authority to reign over creation for themselves. And in so doing, disqualifying themselves as being God's heirs of creation. And now their their curse of being rejected in that role passes down through the generations to us. But when Jesus came, he came as the second Adam, 
the, the one who came to do what the first Adam failed to do, what he could not do. He came to obey the father perfectly, to exercise dominion over creation perfectly without flaw. And in so doing, he became the heir of all things. And that is why if you fast forward a little bit in the book of Hebrews, you look at Hebrews chapter two, it interprets Psalm eight, it cites Psalm eight, and it says that is true of Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm eight. When Psalm eight says that God put everything in subjection under his feet, the apostle says, those are the feet of Jesus. Jesus has become the heir of all things. And now he extends that title, that right to us. Romans 8 says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. My friends, we failed to become heirs by merit. So Jesus has made us heirs by grace. The one who is appointed the heir of all things joins us to himself so that we could be restored to that place of dignity that God originally planned for us to be the children and the heirs of God. That is his human nature. What of his divine nature? Verse three says this, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Here, the apostle is using the imagery of light. Just as the sun radiates light, so also the father radiates the sun. The sun is not the sun without light. And God is not the father without the son. They are distinct and yet equal. And that is why the apostle adds that Jesus is the, also the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. The word for, for nature there is a very significant one. It's in the Greek, it's hypostasis. It's a word that's used to describe what something really is rather than what it appears to be. And so here it refers to God's substance, God's nature, the very essence of his being. The apostle is telling us that Christ is the exact imprint of God's nature, exact, without flaw or blemish. The nature of the son is the nature of the father. They're distinct from one another, like the son is distinct from his light, and yet they are equal because they are of the same nature. My friends, this is why we can believe with absolute confidence that everything that Jesus tells us about God is true. The reason why we can have confidence that God has spoken to us by the Son without error or flaw is because Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Everything that is true of God is true of Jesus. We see the Son when we see the light, and we see the Father. When we see his son, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The apostle tells us one more glorious truth about the son in verse three. He says he upholds the universe 
by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Listen, creation didn't just come into existence through the sun. Creation continues to exist through the sun. Every moment of time, including this moment right now, whether you're in the church or at home, the breath that you take, the gravity that holds you to the ground, all of it is upheld by the word of his power. The word of God created the universe and the word of God sustains the universe. It sustains the breath in your lungs, in my lungs, my COVID infected lungs. It sustains the the, the properties, the natural properties that hold together the orbits of the solar system. It's what makes life possible in the universe. But this word uphold doesn't just mean to, to hold in place like, like Atlas, you know, holding the earth on his shoulders. It, it has the meaning of actually carrying something to its intended objective. It, it has a teleological purpose. It's a purposeful upholding. Every molecule in the universe is headed towards its, its intended objective by the powerful word of the sun. Now, this teaches us another fundamental truth about the Christian God. That the Christian God is not just a God who set things up so that they could run by themselves. He actually set things up so that they could not run without him. Yes, there are natural laws in our universe that enable us to predict certain things. If I drop a ball, it's going to bounce back up. If I, if I jump from the ground, gravity is going to pull me back down. But the only reason why those natural laws are held in place is because Christ upholds them by the word of his power. They could be changed or removed in an instant. That is often when what we call miracles happen. But whenever laws remain in place or are temporarily suspended, they're always used by Christ to accomplish his purposes and to take creation to its intended objective. Now, doesn't that lift your heart to worship him? Now, this is the glorious son we're talking about. Jesus of Nazareth is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And yet there's one more thing that Jesus came to do. One more thing that calls us not only to worship him as our creator and sustainer, but to trust him as our savior. And this leads to our final point, trust the son. Verse three ends like this. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The apostle tells us that our creator and sustainer, the heir of all things, is also the one who made purification for sins. This is, this is religious ritualistic language that the apostle is using here. It's, it's the language of the priestly ministry taken from the book of Leviticus, which is crucial, by the way. If we're going to understand the book of Hebrews, we need to understand the book of Leviticus, which is probably why not more people preach through the book of Hebrews. We all know how difficult it is to get through Leviticus. It has a lot of concepts that seem to be irrelevant to us. But it provides the categories that not only lead us to an understanding of the book of Hebrews, but leads us to the glorious vision of Christ that the book of Hebrews sets to put forth to us. 
And so in Leviticus, people needed to be purified. They needed to be purified because of sin, or they needed to be purified because of ritual uncleanness. There were various means of doing so. Some of them were purified by the sprinkling of water. Uh, But most of the time, purification was only done uh, through the offering of a sacrifice. Blood was required for purification. Only the blood of a substitute sacrifice could make someone clean and pure. And verse 3 tells us that that is what Jesus has done. He made purification for sins. Except he didn't do that by offering an animal. He didn't do that simply by sprinkling some water on us. He, 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 he made purification for sins by offering himself. As, as Jesus, the great high priest, stood in the holy of holies, he offered himself. This is one of the great themes of the entire book of Hebrews. That Jesus is both priest and sacrifice. He provided the single sacrifice through his death on the cross that washed away all our sins. And once he did, unlike the priests in Leviticus, he didn't have to wait for the next religious festival for him to offer another sacrifice. He didn't have to die again and again and again. He took a seat. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high because his work was finished. His blood was shed on the cross and is completely sufficient for all our sins, past, present, and future. He offered himself once for all, the innocent for the guilty, the pure for the impure, the righteous for the sinner, so that we could be made pure and clean before our holy God. My friends, this is the Son of God. This is the Savior of the world, the one who is the radiance of the glory of God is also the lamb who was slain. And this is why we listen to the son, why we worship the son and why we trust the son. It's because the one who sustains the universe by the word of his power chose not to sustain his very own life when he died on the cross. And when he died, when he decided not to sustain his own life, He was actually accomplishing his role in sustaining the universe. The the two aren't separate, separate. His work of sustaining and his work of purifying. He sustains creation by purifying creation. Listen to what Peter O'Brien says in his commentary. The sun's sustaining all things is not simply the backdrop to or the precursor of his redemptive work. His cleansing of sins is an important objective of Christ's providential work. And so we we, we see that Jesus showed, he, he demonstrated that he was willing to do whatever it took to sustain the universe by dying for sins. And now all who trust in him as Savior and Lord can be purified from their sins through faith in his name. This is an incredible gift because how many of you feel pure? I mean, do you feel pure right now? Do you feel morally pure? Do you feel physically pure? Do you feel relationally pure? 
We don't feel pure. We feel tainted. We feel that we've failed in every aspect of our lives. But the apostle tells us that Christ has made purification for our sins. A purification that is sufficient for all people for all times. If we would turn to him and trust him. We don't have to look to other saviors to purify our conscience. Whether it be drugs or self-help gurus or our careers or our reputations or the money in our bank accounts. We don't need to be afraid that the blood of Jesus will not be enough, that we've exhausted the fountain of his sacrifice through the depths of our sin. Jesus has offered himself once for all, and now he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high because his work is finished. Our text ends in verse four. It says, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And we're going to study that verse more in depth next week because the rest of the chapter is about the comparison between the sun and angels. But for today, today, it's enough to say this. Jesus has inherited a name that is more excellent than the glory and majesty and worth of any angelic being that we have read about in scripture. His name is sweet and satisfying. His name is pure and it is powerful. His name is the name above all names. And at his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, my friends, this is what endurance in the Christian faith begins with. It begins with a high, exalted view of Christ himself. It is only when we believe that Jesus is who the Bible reveals himself to be that we will have the desire to listen to him, worship him, and trust him for the endurance of our faith to the end. So, today, if you find yourself weak in faith, waning in your convictions, beginning to drift away, then don't just look for a how-to manual or a pragmatic solution. You don't need a five-step program to the recovery of your faith. What you need is Christ himself. You need the glorious Christ, Christ exalted as supreme and worthy of worship, the one who both is the radiance of the glory of God and the purifier of our sins. You need to know that Christ is the one who created you in your mother's womb. You need to know that Christ is the one who sustains you every moment of every day and carries you towards God's intended purposes for your life. And if you trust in him, you need to know that Christ has purified you from every stain of sin, including those stains that you are too ashamed to talk about. And so the book of Hebrews invites us this Sunday and in the subsequent Sundays as we walk through this book, to come and listen to the glorious Christ, to worship him as the son of God, and to trust him as the one who has given purification for our sins. Let's pray.
Oh, what love you have shown to us, Father, in giving us the gift of your Son. We know him. Many of us know him as the sacrifice for sin. But not many of us have truly grasped the reality of who he truly is from eternity. The glorious son entered into our world to not only be our great high priest, but to be our sacrifice for sins. And we pray that as we fight for faith, as we seek to endure to the end by your grace, that you would supply that fuel for our faith through an increasingly exalted vision of Christ himself, that he would be the most beautiful treasure that we have in our lives, the most beautiful, glorious vision that we can see. And may he sustain us to the very end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.